1: Here we are Radio on Radical Stray Community Radio 3CR, uh, 855 on your AM dial. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast, podcast, dogcast. <laughs> I'm a bit tense today. Now, Young Dale. See? Si. How are you, Empress? I'm not too bad. How are you? Oh, I'm just here. I'm just here. Fortunately, we've got an interesting guest. Obviously, all our guests are interesting, that's why they're <laughs> invited to come here. We have. We've got the drum roll. Yes. Sam Castro. It's more of a cheer than a gun. Yeah, it is. Now, Sam, this program, you've got 58 minutes and two questions. Wow. And the first question takes 10 seconds.
2: Oh, God. Okay, what's the second question going to be?
1: Well, you'll find out um. now. Now first of all, just to orientate our listeners Yes What year were you born?
2: 1970
1: seventy. Seventy, you relatively young Love child Yes, a love child of the hippie revolution, yep yeah. <laughs> That turned could out well, my, hey It could be my daughter I remember the, the Festival of Aquarius in 1970 <laughs> that's, that's another story We won't go down that path <laughs> all right.
2: Just speak to my mother
1: <laughs> Now, what's the earliest thing you remember?
2: Well, that's really interesting. I probably have a, um, a unique scenario compared to most kids mm-hmm. um, because I had a, a terrible horse riding accident when I was six where I, I actually physically died. I was dead. I drowned in my own blood. So I don't really have many memories before no. that accident. So, so tell us about the accident. I was six. I was riding to Pony Club. Um, My mum was supposed to be following me but decided I'd been doing it so many times she would go and have coffee with a mate and meet me at the pony club. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of uh, young men drove past and threw beer bottles at my pony Mm
3: -hmm.
2: who bolted through a barbed wire fence and I shot over the top and landed on some of Telemarine's finest volcanic rock
3: Mm
2: And um, split open the bottom half of my face and ruptured my spleen and was left to die,
1: basically. Didn't the young men stop?
2: No, not at all. And they clearly saw what happened. Um, The woman who came uh, behind them, her face is one of my earliest memories, actually, which was the look of horror when she Mm. uh, turned a very small child over to see half their face hanging off. Uh, So, yeah, that's um, pretty much how it happened and I ended up Dead on arrival at hospital. Right.
1: Well, did they take you straight to the children's? Or,
2: or? Yeah, well, it was a bit of kerfuffle. Mm. Um, my mother didn't realise I was bleeding internally and right. went looking for my father, who was mm. in East Kill or doing little athletics with my brother. Right, and back right. in the seventies, you do yes. And uh, so there was a bit of a delay, which of course didn't help with all the blood mm. flowing around my body. Mm. Uh, my dad at the time, who was a um, a bit of a AFL, what used to be VFL. Legend mm-hmm. happened to be driving a porsche
3: mm-hmm.
2: and decided that his car was faster than an ambulance, right. and he realized I was bleeding internally right. uh, so we did the the rapid run down the Tuller freeway to the children 's hospital and yeah i was I was dead by the time we got there and um, had a had a sort of amazing i guess what people call a near death experience which i didn 't recall until I was twenty two mm. um and they managed to get the blood out of me and get more blood into me and use the defibrillator and mm. bring me back to life. Mm. And I spent probably nearly three months in hospital. I got out on Christmas Eve. Right. So this was his
1: 76, 77. Yeah, 76 yeah, it wasn't a bad year for medicine in those days. <laughs> it wasn't a bad year. I was kind of starting out in my career. Not that I was there. I was at the Austin. But
2: Well, those doctors saved my life.
1: Of course they did. Yeah. People don't understand that. If that had happened in the country, you wouldn't be here today. No,
2: absolutely not. And yeah. if it had been a few minutes more, I mm-hmm. wouldn't I, – or I would be here, but severely right. brain damaged. Or yeah. um, So I was very, very lucky. I was right within the window of being clinically dead and mm-hmm. and still revivable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it took me about 12 months to uh, sort of go through the – the process, the accident somehow damaged sort of my bladder control, my muscle movement. Mm-hmm. There was a whole heap of consequences. Yes. Yes. Uh, not to mention that it wasn't really until I was in my twenties I realised that I had nervous system and, and sort of back problems that mm-hmm. had been there since the accident. That's which, right. you know, in the seventies they discharge you and your parents go, "Yeah, you're you're alive," That's and right. That's no one th- thinks to take you to an osteo or a chiropractor or <laughs> uh, right. mm-hmm. let alone deal with any of the PTSD or trauma that comes from such an incident. But
1: um, well, you don't get you yeah. did not get PTSD. In those no, days. apparently not. It didn't happen. <laughs> it never happened. I mean, they get a bit of shame self But in World War II. but you kids now, you could deal with anything. Yeah.
2: So I mean, just getting back to the memories. That's weird.
1: Tell us about the uh, hospital stay for three months. What was that like? Do you have tubes that coming out?
2: Yeah, I did. I, um, when they brought me back to life, apparently, even though I was a very tiny dot of, of a girl, mm. I ferociously pulled all the tubes they'd put into my body uh, uh. to save me and transfuse me. Mm. Uh, so when I woke up again in intensive care, I was strapped like a mental patient to the bed mm. um, and I was kept like that for quite a while because I seemed to, in my sleep, be pulling at things and stuff. Mm. Uh, so I think the the first sort of... conscious days that I remember of being alone in intensive care I I was tied down basically and then I moved to a very small ward that had incredibly uh, serious injuries. So, for example, one of the girls who was in there longer than me but came in the night after I first was conscious, uh, had been dragged. She got hit by a car on her bike and had been dragged mm-hmm. um, and was in for a lifetime of skin grafting. Yeah. And yeah. Um, So I was in a very small room of six other children and, um, Some of them I didn't even know if they were male or female because they were so wrapped because of what had happened to them. Another person had been burnt uh, and we were like the, I think we were the kind of they might die group (laughs) that had been put together. Um, So and then slowly everyone got moved out of the ward except for me Mm. Um, and mainly that was because they tried, uh, they didn't want to take my spleen out. So I'd lost a massive chunk of my spleen so there was a lot of, not being allowed to move, and I think at one point I decided I was well enough to move myself. Um, so, you know, the radical streak was there from the very beginning. Um, and, of course, I climbed out of bed after not using my legs for so long and collapsed and re-ruptured my spleen. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
2: Uh, so... so that's
1: when they took it out. No, no. no. no,
2: no so they went not. through the whole process again, yeah, yeah. Um, which was, mm. you know, on reflection quite traumatising for my body because mm. it required more tubes being forced that's down my body and yeah. things. Uh, But I managed to keep my spleen, and and as a grown woman, I've had three children, Um, and anyone who knows anything about the spleen knows that it's used to purify blood for uh, babies, but also for the immune system. And it wasn't really until the third pregnancy I really started to feel like, oh, I think I kind of forgot that my body's not quite like everybody everybody else's. Uh, So, yeah, it was... A bit traumatising and a bit lonely.
1: It is lonely. You you lose Mm. your friends because they move on.
2: That's right. And I remember begging and crying to be allowed to go home on Mm. Christmas Eve. Yeah, no, no. You would have seen
1: me as Santa. Yeah. That was my first Santa, 1976. At the children's hospital. No, at the children's wing at the Austin Hospital. Okay. As the junior doctor, you got the job of being Santa on Christmas Day. Right. So you're lucky you missed me giving you a present. I'm incredible. I
2: was incredibly. I, I mean, it kind of came back to haunt me yes. in the late 80s mm. when AIDS came about because, of course, I was multiply transfused in a time where there was no screening. Mm. So mm. I remember being 19 and, and getting this letter saying, We think you could potentially be susceptible to being infected. Mm. You need to go through this six-month screening process and, you know, so it was quite an existential crisis for an already quite existential person mm. of kind of, oh, yeah, that'd be right, someone gave me blood and now the blood's <laughs> going to kill me yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. Well, people so, don't
1: understand that. It's always a major illness or injury yeah. sits on your shoulder for the rest of your life.
2: Yeah, totally, and, and mm. it was very formative and it's funny now because when I, I talk about it to people, I I try and remind people when they're going through the most horrid things in their life that – You know, my grandmother used to say, well, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And I used to find that really flippant when I was, you know, an emotional teenager or, you know, something Mm. was the Mm. end of the world. Mm. Uh, But actually now I look back at that incident where it did actually kill me, but it also made me stronger. Mm. And it was probably the most traumatizing and also the most extraordinary thing that ever happened to me because when I was in my 20s, and able to understand what had occurred, it completely changed my perception on the world Mm. um, and how I viewed life after death. And, um, you Mm. know, I was never a religious person, but it certainly changed me from being a a very fierce existentialist to understanding that there is more to the world than what we can see. See.
1: Going back to when you were discharged from hospital, uh, did you go back to the same primary school?
2: I did. Mm. I did. Um, I mean, I missed a lot of school. But I and I and I was in grade one or something, so I just went up to grade two Mm -hmm. with everyone else. And luckily, um, you know, the the coloring between the lines was not such a big deal, so Mm -hmm. I seemed to be able to catch up. Um, I also went. You know, they said to me, you can't do all these things ever again. And one of them was, of course, horse riding. Riding.
3: Uh,
2: But we lived up in Macedon Mm. at the time. My my dad, as I said, had earned money playing football. Mm -hmm. And so we had this great property. And uh, so one of the first things I did was get back on my horse. And, you know, if I had the money and the time, I'd probably still be riding to this day. Uh, Uh, And it was a really important thing for me to... To ride him and to go into high speed and not be scared of falling off—it was kind Mm. of Mm. um, my first lesson in overcoming internal fear. Yeah, that's right.
1: Confronting your fears, which is yeah, textbook textbook stuff.
2: Yeah, and it was the same horse. Like Mm. he was still with me, and he was also scarred from the accident from Mm. um, getting stuck in all the barbed wire. Mm. So we were kind of scarred together. Mm, Um, (laughs) Yeah, and he helped me. So that horse, in some ways, also became. very much a, a therapeutic component to recovery for me. Well,
1: why do you like horses? And what do you like riding?
2: Uh, well, uh, my dad was uh, a rider. And mm. so I was riding horses before I could walk. Uh, my earliest um, photographs of me are sitting on the front with my dad when I was like, you know, maybe mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he said he would go over jumps and I would squeal and say again, again, yeah. <laughs> again. So I think I, there was something in my nature that was always fearless. Right. And I think that what I loved about horses was. They were strong, they were wild, but they seemed to love people in some respects. And I, um, You know, I remember learning their wildness where I at one point thought that I could get on my horse in in its paddock and ride without a saddle or a bridle because we were at one Mm -hmm. and, of course, got thrown off very quickly and realised he didn't want to play, um, that he's he's not that in tune with me. Mm. Um, But growing up on a property and watching foals being born, um, animals were always a really important part of my life Mm. Uh, and horses just were there and I loved the sense of being able to – as I grew up uh whenever I was feeling angst at the world or I, I grew in a grew up in a very dysfunctional family, I would get on my horse and ride out into Macedon into the forests right, and right. It was a way for me to escape mm. much as as I sort of became a teenager, you know reading books became a way to escape so do you have any
1: brothers and sisters
2: i do i have a um I have an older brother who's mm. 18 months older than me, um, chalk and cheese, and I have some younger half-siblings that That's came right. along later much on, later, on. later on. Yeah.
1: You said, look, I don't, I don't want to, we don't pry in this program, but you said dysfunctional, <laughs> what, your parents split up eventually, I assume, did they?
2: Uh, yeah, yeah <laughs> they did. I guess very typical of mm. that baby boomer generation, my mum got pregnant and my dad was on the rise to becoming a football star and... Mm. And he, you know, didn't want to get married and didn't want to have children. And um, and then all of a sudden he was a father with my brother before his 21st birthday. And mm. then I came along. Uh, so I think in some ways they were perhaps never suited. Uh, but my father was also incredibly violent towards his partners, mm. n- never towards us as kids. I mean, he smacked us as mm. was normal in those, normal in those days. Yep. days. Um, but he was incredibly inv- violent towards my mother. Mm. And so my brother and I witnessed uh, a lot of that kind of intimate domestic violence. And I think it was compounded and confusing for us because everyone at school wanted my dad's autograph and we'd go to the football and everyone would be cheering no, him no. and shouting his name. And no. so I think I learned very early on there is such a distinct difference between public persona and private person, yes, uh, which is not a bad thing to understand. No, no, that's but right. it was very confusing for quite a long time. It is for a
1: young kid. I mean, here you are, mm. you're frightened of your dad, and, mm. there, and he's been lionized by all these people who don't yeah. know him. Yeah, exactly. And you're thinking, you're thinking, what's all this about. So, where did you go to high school?
2: I went to um, Penley and Essendon Grammar, which is a sort of Uh, private school, Mm -hmm. uh, not quite as relished as the old school,
3: Mm -hmm. uh, Xavier and Wesley and all of
2: those. Uh, But it was very much in the 70s, the new school. So the school was full of of, of a lot of Italians and Greeks and Chinese uh, that had new money. And I guess my dad was uh, one of the first footballers to earn a bit of money, Mm -hmm. nothing compared to what they get now. He still had to hold down a job.
1: uh,
2: But enough that he could afford... Uh, you know he's a poor boy from Footscray who never finished high school no one in my family had ever gone to university so his focus was about us having a good education and it was a very academically orientated school Uh, so and and I'm very grateful for that and in year nine and ten we moved to Tasmania for a few years so I got ripped out of a very academic focused school and, and the only school near us was a Catholic school in, right. in Burnie, Tasmania mm-hmm. so I, I entered the weird bizarre world of Catholicism yes. uh, for two years where strangely I was ostracised because I was not baptised and I wasn't religious
1: You weren't baptised? No,
2: I've never been baptised which apparently means I need some sort of... Um, oh, excuse me? Exorcism? I don't know if I want to, I don't know, I don't I want to continue this Step discussion. back, I'm not contagious Well, yeah. you know, you've never
1: been uh, So you weren't confirmed, you weren't baptised? No, no, no. This is this is shocking, it is. <laughs> and you went to a Catholic school. I did for two years, yes. based uh, on that they uh. weren't,
2: a, it was uh discriminatory for them to prevent us from going mm-hmm. there when the majority were Catholic, mm. so it was quite bizarre for me to enter that world of ritual. Mm. Uh, and, of course, many years later it came out that many of the the girls that I went to school with were sexually assaulted so by Morris Brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so I was lucky the teacher that did all the assaulting had left the year before, before. I went there, oh, so yay uh, for me. But many of my friends uh, did have to go through trial and, and process and, you know, I'm sure there are many that, that never spoke out. Mm. Um, and it was quite, yeah, I felt quite stigmatised because... They'd all get up and, and take the wafer and drink the wine, and I was never allowed to participate mm. in any of those components. No.
1: Well, you couldn't, you weren't baptised. No, and so in fact. You weren't part of the club, I'm sorry. I wasn't
2: part of the club to the extent where they actually, I think about a month into being there, quietly pulled me aside and said, you know, because I asked a lot of questions. I was actually very curious mm. about religion and spirituality uh, because I'd never been exposed to it in this kind of organised way. Uh, But they pulled me out and kind of said, look, uh, you know, we feel that it's probably better if you don't go to religious classes, which were three times a week. So I had a free period Mm. uh, and found myself sort of engaging in drama and writing and Mm. music and and other things because I had been uh, excluded from even participating in the conversation around God.
1: Right. So yeah. when you went back to Melbourne, I assume, you, did you finish high school in Melbourne?
2: Yeah, so I came back to the same school in mm. year 11 and 12 yeah. mm. and then I started at Melbourne Uni. Now,
1: hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, <laughs> hang on, hang on, hang on, we've got an hour, relax. So how did you go in your year 12 exam? Uh,
2: yeah, well, back then it was, uh, what was it called, HSC? HSC, yeah. yeah. High,
1: high school certificate. Yeah.
2: yeah, I think our year, I graduated in 1988, I think that mm. was one of the last years, Uh, I was just always really good at school. School for me was the only stable environment that I really had in my life. Mm -hmm. So unlike most of my peers, I relished school because it was a safe space where I could turn my intellect and my head to something outside of the dysfunction of my family. Mm. Um, So I did really well and I got into uh, law economics at Melbourne Uni uh, because I was told that's what I should put down because I'm smart. Right. um, Why not something
1: practical like dentistry or medicine or (laughs) veterinarian or.
2: I I guess it was the subjects I chose. Yeah, Yeah, yeah,
1: because that sounds very practical, you know. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Does the world need another lawyer? Exactly.
1: With an (laughs) an economics major, you know. Yeah, yeah. Look at the the way the world is today. It's all because of people like you. I know. Did you finish the degree?
2: No, I, I, I got. Uh, halfway through the first year and I, I also studied Chinese all the way through high school and had managed to continue Chinese into university.
3: Mm-hmm. And,
2: of course, 1989 was the year of Tiananmen Square and um, also was the year that Paul Keating introduced hexed. Mm-hmm. So university for me in that first six months was an explosion of um, protest and, and radical sort of action And part of the group that I was involved in, in terms of Chinese, was we decided that every Chinese student would withdraw in protest. Uh, So I withdrew from that subject. And then uh, there was a massive protest that happened on campus around the Hextet uh, very early on, uh, where police came on campus and cars were overturned and uh, student records were set on fire. And I was accosted by police in that process and uh, an older, wiser student recognised that I was a newbie about to get caught up and Mm. grabbed the hat off the officer and distracted him and sort Mm. of said to me, run. Uh, And so I feel like after a couple of months of all of these things, I was just kind of like... I don't even, why would I want to be a lawyer? Why do I want, why am I even here? These are all the kids I went to high school with. They're all just these private school ninnies. And so I started to think about what I actually loved and wanted to do, and that was media. Media. Yeah, which was a new thing at the time to be able to do at uni. And Mm. RMIT was offering this kind of niche course around media studies. So I transferred out and uh, ended up doing a, a BA in media at RMIT. So,
1: so I assume at this stage in your life you're living away from home.
2: Yeah, yeah. I moved out sort of straight after high school. High school yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And what was the media course like?
2: It was great. It was. Uh, I was sort of in the media production group, so we were doing film and radio production, uh, and also a lot of. Core subjects around communication theory and deconstruction and philosophy, all the things that really interest me. And then there was a journalist component and a PR component. Mm. Mm. Uh, And of course, you know, the media students were the ones wearing Doc Martens and looking like they just stepped out of a Nirvana concert, uh, which was my group. And then the PR students were dressed like they belonged on Chapel Street, and the journal students were just trying to look preppy all the time. Um, So I had a great time and I really enjoyed the course and it was it was much more diverse than i expected and i ended up uh mainly because of a sexist teacher moving out of film production into radio uh, and i fell in love with radio basically and have mm. been since then i think i started at triple r doing the graveyard shifts mm. have in some way for my entire adult life been doing radio so
1: right and let's go back you said at 22 you uh had your near-death experience you experienced it what brought Mm. that on
2: it's you, you know it's just the most bizarre thing and it reinforces for me that concept of sometimes the most significant moments in your life seem like nothing and you don't recognize them until they've gone and I I was seriously just sitting in a park with a friend who I hadn't seen for quite a while and she looked at me and she said, God, you look like a kid at the moment. You look so young. And I just remember laying down on on the grass and started thinking about what it was like when I was a kid. And I guess the first thing that struck me is I I couldn't search my memory past that day. And then all of a sudden, it, you know, it sounds like something out of a movie, but it, it literally ran in my head like a movie. Mm. Uh, and I realised that I'd had this near-death experience where I had been outside of my body from the moment my father had carried me into the building. But I remembered everything. So, you know, back in those days there weren't mobile phones, so I ran back to uh, my friend's apartment and I called my father at work and I said, "I, you know, he's like, I'm really busy and I'm like, I need you to just shut up and just tell me if I'm tripping out. Mm. Did this happen? Mm. And I went through everything that I remembered right down to – The color of the scissors that were being used to cut my clothes off me Mm. Mm. when they took me in, and he was dead silent. And when I finished, he just said, "There's just no way you could remember any of that. You you were dead, Mm. like you were unconscious. There's just Mm. no way. How do Mm. you know that? Mm. You know?" And I said, "Well, I don't know how I know that. I'm just that's why I'm calling you to say, did this actually happen? Where is this coming from in my my being?" yeah and i it, it was quite a monumental thing to realize that I was remembering something that had occurred while I was apparently not conscious, conscious. and not breathing mm. um,
1: you know what the latest thing is on that, that
2: i've I've heard that it's some sort of chemical yeah, reaction yeah. where oh. you're hallucinating well you're
1: not actually hallucinating what <laughs> what you're actually doing is your uh, your memory is trying to maintain onto life mm. and it has a a vivid capacity to retain everything that happens at the last moment, yeah and, and uh, it's just put in the memory bank and at yep. some stage it'll come back I mean there was the cue that your friend said you look like a child, you were lying on the grass, it was a pleasant environment mm. i'm not saying i'm not negating mm. what happened, mm-hmm. I'm just thinking of you know of the um a uh, physiological reason why. And a lot of people yeah. put more into it than maybe it is. I mean, you didn't yeah. – no, nobody came down with a big hand and said, come on, wake <laughs> up. You I, basically described what happened to you.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I was definitely uh – I, I was moving in in my visual mm. uh, focus
1: yeah.
2: away from my body yep. and, and then That's I was right. up in the ceiling.
1: That's right. As the blood pressure dropped. And
2: then as they, yeah. they used mm. the defibrillator on me, yeah. yep. it's the most painful thing I've ever experienced, mm. ever. More painful than the and accident. Child, and
1: more painful than childbirth.
2: Yes. Mm. And... Uh, it was excruciating not just because of the physical pain but i was actually not in pain wherever i was however mm. that was occurring mm. uh yeah so for me i mean i don't see it as a god well oh, you know i'm a now like oh i've seen the light of you know yeah, uh but i feel like something extraordinary about the the human capacity to experience things that are outside of what we consider physically possible uh, occurred. And it totally turned me from being an incredibly sceptical person to being Incredibly open Mm, to mm. maybe there's more to this life and this planet than I initially thought. Uh, But yeah, it definitely didn't uh, want, I didn't sort of think I should go out and get baptized. No, no.
1: (laughs) Feeds feeds into concepts like the new concept of cultural memory. Yeah. The fact that this is in our DNA. Yeah. And we feel we've been there before and maybe maybe we have been there before. Who knows? So it's all part of the same. Yeah, complex. It's, human beings aren't aren't um, simple things.
2: No. Well, I mean, the interesting thing is the kind of stuff it turned me on to was mm. sort of Timothy Leary and, you yeah. know, Terence McKenna and psychedelic drugs. And, you know, I think I started experimenting with LSD and mushrooms. Mm. And mm. Mm. I wanted to know what my brain could do and where mm. it could go because mm. I suddenly felt like it was so much more than I realised it was. Mm. And I couldn't work out what had happened to me. There was no explanation that satisfied me. Uh, so yeah, it was it was a positive thing. If nothing else, it made me read a lot more widely well, right. and, and consider, you know, other cultures' perceptions of what it means to right. inter interrelate with nature and and mm. with ourselves.
1: So you think your hallucinogenic experiences they actually added to to you as a person, or they were just experiences that came and went?
2: I no, I think they were very formative for me. I I feel like uh the, the, the first kind of couple of times that I experimented with hallucinogenics, I feel like it reset something in me that had been out of balance for mm. a really, really long time. And it was more about an emotional resetting of the depression, maybe the post-traumatic stress that I had from my parents, uh, things that at the time I certainly couldn't have at- articulated to you. Mm. But something in me rebalanced and made me feel like I belonged on the planet for the first time Time, and I hadn't felt that for most of my life. I always felt like I was from somewhere else and I didn't fit in and I couldn't relate to my family and I couldn't relate to the society. And then there was something about the experience of psychedelics that really did dissolve some of those boundaries for me in understanding, well, even if the whole human species is – I was going to swear is not good, <laughs> stuffed. Uh, yeah. stuffed. Yeah. Uh, then I can at least talk to animals and the plants, and oh. I can feel like I belong on this planet, separate mm. to my relationship mm. to humanity, which always seemed like quite a a dark and and heavy space.
1: Well, you know, in fact, you can't. You've got no memory before the age of six. Before your accident, that mm. you lost that. And obviously, mm. most likely because of the, the fact that you um, had the low blood pressure. It makes it sensible that it's difficult to interact. Yeah. Difficult because you don't have that memory to actually guide you
2: no you had to
1: recreate yourself from the age of six
2: correct yeah that's a really good way to describe it Mm. and it's how my grandmother described it Mm. she was like it was like a different girl came Mm. home from the hospital
1: yeah we talk a lot about your grandmother was she Mm. a formative influencer
2: she was because my parents were so uh dysfunctional i i really see her as my mother i really i spent most of my childhood growing up with her and uh, a large percentage of, of my time living with her and until I was 18. Mm. Uh, she was sort of where we got taken when there was, you know...
1: Friction, yeah. Yeah,
2: yeah. So uh, she was incredibly important to me and, and grew up in that sort of... She was from the war era. So, I don't know, she instilled in me a whole sort of different understanding about the modern world that, that had come into being as I was growing up. You know, she would talk about, oh, well, we used to have a cold room that we dug in the backyard yeah, and we yeah, would keep yeah, our yeah. meats. So I think I had a very different appreciation for everything from music to mm. um, how, how disposable things were becoming mm. uh, than a lot of the people around me mm. as well, yeah.
1: So what does a young woman who has a media degree do once you've got your little degree <sighs> in your head?
2: You walk out into the recession we had to have. (laughs) That's what you do. Thank you, Paul Keating. Yeah. You know, and and unfortunately most of the people that graduated in 93, 94 with me, that's what happened. Mm. Yeah. so what did you
1: still have? Did we still have the professional doll office in those days? Or was, yeah, yeah, it's good. Well, you know, it was, yeah. wasn't too bad, was it? It was great. It yeah.
2: funded many trips to Byron Bay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there was entire announcements on stages by TISM thanking mm. uh, what was whatever it was called back then for yes. sponsoring the festival. Mm. So I spent a lot of time <laughs> going to festivals, hanging out with creative people. I, it was right at the time where digital music and rave culture was exploding. So I was. One of the first female DJs, sort of doing techno music mm-hmm. in Melbourne, and very involved in the sort of underground warehouse party rave culture scene, which, of course, back then was fueled by psychedelics as opposed to, mm. you know, ketamine or whatever horse tranquilizers they're taking these days. Uh, so it all sort of fitted into the cultural, sort of subculture exploration that I was having anyway. And I worked in bars like most people for mm. cash in hand so it yeah. wouldn't affect my doll and, mm. Mm. you know, so no super and no, nothing, no, no, nothing right, like man. that. Suffering uh, yeah, so that real job insecurity but also a, a real sense of freedom and I I started to get involved in politics. So the rise of Pauline Hanson, point one, was happening at the time. Uh, so there was lots of rallies and stuff going on that I found myself just naturally being pulled into and the anti-globalisation movement started Mm. to unfold, you know, long before I knew Foe with much of Foe's involvement. Mm. So little did I know Foe had its hooks in me way back then because I was hanging with people that were involved in that Uh, and I became really interested in trying to understand the politics, the, the, the global politic that was shaping, and for me, the, almost an obsession with trying to understand the power of the American Empire, I guess. Mm.
1: It's 436' the radical Australian community radio 3C. The Empress herself, Dale Bridge, is doing all the technical work because I'm too stupid to learn, and our special guest <laughs> is Sam Castro. Without Dale, we don't have a program. You know that.
3: <laughs>
1: she, she's just remarkable. Yes. Remarkable. And she knows and but and she knows she's remarkable. That's that's the problem. <laughs> Look at her, she's humoring me. Oh fart, she's thinking to herself. So how long did that phase of your life start lasted?
2: Uh, so I think it was around nineteen ninety five.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: So it had been a couple of years out of uni and still couldn't find work.
1: Still couldn't find work?
2: Not in the profession that I right, wanted, not right. permanent work. You know, I get sort so of you, short. you
1: couldn't show your media degree to the bar? No. no. <laughs> they weren't interested. No. So I was,
2: I was still doing Triple R and I was... Uh, what
1: were you doing at Triple R?
2: I was doing a Monday show and an overnight show and then I helped start another radio station that was testing for a uh, permanent licence called Kiss FM, which yep. was the first dance, yes. sort of techno-focused. And... You know, what I discovered is the reality that most women discover is that all spaces are male-dominated. Uh, I, For some reason I thought that this culture, because we were all sort of this tribe that we're thinking differently and globally and cosmopolitan, and no, the men were still dominating and running everything. Uh, so I was like this uh, standalone female amongst all these male DJs. Uh, I started a night at a, a place in the city called Little Riadas. Called Global Warming, which was an all female DJ night, which Mm. became so successful the male DJs took it over and destroyed it. And uh, I. Hang on, hang on. Why don't you let them take it over? Well, the owner of the club oh, right. was, con- yeah, right. was convinced by the men that were coming and seeing the cues and how yeah. pumping it was that yeah, yeah. it's time to get some real DJs re- in there. Real DJs real in there. Real DJs they. in, yeah, in yeah. there, not did, these, not these re- chicks with their candles and their yeah. incense and yeah. their world music. They didn't realise
1: that you were lure, Yeah. Not the, not the male. Yeah. You were different. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Yeah. So I was... I was kind of really struggling having this really terrible time of everywhere I turned and even in the politic of what was unfolding in Australia, it just everything felt so sort of sexist and trapped and the few jobs I'd had in media were in advertising agencies where, of course, exactly the same mentality applied on steroids. Uh, And then I was rushing from a radio show to get to my waitering job uh, and I jumped in a cab and I jumped in the front seat and was driving through the middle of the city and the cab driver sexually assaulted me. And How old were you then? Uh, 25.
1: This was during the day? Or yes, during, during the, the day. day. Right.
2: It was on the Flinders Street bi- Bridge right, right near the convention right. centre right. and I was getting off to... Was, it,
1: was he doing a Trump?
2: He did kind of do a Trump except yeah. he went for my breasts instead right. of my... Mm. And <laughs> 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 that was Dale's sound effect, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, So I remember leaping out of the cab, just really upset, and running down to South Bank to the cafe I was working at. Mm -hmm. And then when I got there, I realised I was shaking. And I was like, I I just got sexually assaulted in broad daylight in the middle of the city by a cab driver. Off industry, yeah. Like, what the hell is going on here? Mm -hmm. So luckily I'd called the cab from where I was coming and going from. So I um, tracked them down, said I want to put in a report. I had two investigators come to my house and my my two other female housemates were there. And the first question that I was asked was, what was I wearing? And oh. the, the second question was, why did I get in the front seat? Oh. I was, hello? Oh,
1: this is Australia. That's
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I don't know, something inside me kind of snapped. And that night I ran into a friend who had... Also had sort of enough for Melbourne and said, "Bugger it, I'm going north." I've, mm-hmm. I've got he's got a like Leyland Brothers big cruiser. Yep, yep. I can fit seven people. If you know anyone who wants to come, I'm leaving in a week. And I, I don't know what happened. I gave away everything I owned. Like I gave away my car for a dollar because I had mm-hmm. to sign it to transfer it to someone's yeah. name but, with money. Yep. I I just gave away everything that I owned and except what I could fit in a backpack and got in this truck and. Uh, Went up the coast. It took what us. What year was this? Uh, this was the end of 95. So
1: you were in 25? 25.
2: 25, yeah. Mm. And.
1: Uh, the world's your oyster. <laughs> yeah. But not much money in your not pocket. Not much money in my
2: pocket, <laughs> yeah. but a lot of faith that the universe would provide. Right, yes. And uh, so I got as far as uh, Yapoon in mm. Queensland, right opposite Great Keppel Island. Yeah. And I just remember coming, we decided to go there because we knew there was a beach there and we needed to just chill out for a day or two. And I remember coming over the hill where you can first see the town with the beautiful beaches. Yep. And I just spontaneously said out loud to the people I was apparently travelling to Cairns with, I'm getting out right here. here. Yep. And I did. Mm. And I stayed there for three and a half years. And right.
1: Did you um, bump into Radio Nag people?
2: I helped set up Radio Nag. Ah!
1: <laughs> now, Radio Nag is just a legend, a legend. I've always wanted to meet somebody from Radio Nag. I was one of the very yeah, first Berger. people that helped yeah. put the
2: programming together yeah, and, yeah. and of course, they hated me because I was playing techno music so I was on the overnight shift where I just yeah, get to, like, yeah, doof away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how how
1: big your poon? Tell us about it. What's it like? What well, when is it like? Oh when, when you were there?
2: When yeah. I was there back in the 90s, it was this gorgeous little tiny fisherman's village. There were yeah. no traffic lights, yep. couple of roundabouts, mm. beautiful fish co-op where you could just get the freshest fish mm. straight off the boats.
3: Mm.
2: Uh, hardly anyone came there except a little bit like Melbourne and, say, um, Ocean Grove. You'd get sort of Melbourne, Rockhampton people come out <laughs> uh, on the weekends.
1: She was born in Rockhampton. I was not born, in,
0: I was born in Brisbane. I grew up on the road to Yipoon. Yeah,
2: right. You actually grew up on the road to Yipoon. There's a lot of roadkill on that road. Just near
0: where Lenny Fraser used to dump the bodies. Yeah, right. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Yep.
2: So, okay.
0: Jesus, I love central Queensland. And
2: there's that that place where they sent all the Aboriginal mob to be pushed. There's some amazing stories around that area, in Mm. fact. Disgusting. Yeah. Yeah. So I fell in love with the place basically, and it was tiny and it was quiet. And I found a couple. You know, of course, the first people I met were the people that tried to blow up the Japanese resort. So I I was like, "You're (laughs) my kind." Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, "You're my kind of people." (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I met sort of the alternative people, which was great because, as you probably both know, it is quite a redneck area. Uh, And I just kind of detoxified my body and my mind and I lived there for three years and you know stopped smoking stopped drinking became vegetarian you know just sort of wanted to clean stop taking the pill like just everything that I had consumed and done to myself out of experimentation and joy, and also mm. probably self destruction
3: mm.
2: i just I just felt like I needed to to heal and to deal with the trauma of my childhood and and my life and work out who I was and all those kind of things that you mm. know you mm. probably either do when you 're a lot older or you, or maybe not i don 't I don't know but uh, I grew food. I learned to be self-sufficient. I learned to uh, use a potting wheel. I learned to make a boat. I, you know, yep. just kind of skilled up well, in a whole heap of ways.
1: The people who saved your life. Yeah, that's what you did. Exactly. For the first time in your life, Yeah. You thanked them. You said, "Thank you. Yeah. I'm alive. Yep. I yep. don't need all that shit."
2: Yeah, and it was a, it was, it was a really important thing for me to do, and uh, I really enjoyed it. I found it really hard living there. Even in the three and a half years that I was there, I could see how that town was going to be destroyed Mm. uh, because it was so beautiful and, you know, you call something paradise, you can, you know, kiss it goodbye. So, of course, all of the mining boom led to huge... Mansions being built as I was leaving, and I took my kids back there about four years ago. And and the the beautiful old cinema is now a Rip Curl shop, and you know it's Mm. there are traffic lights and there is a Coles. I was sand mining
0: Byfield in '91. So and it was yeah. downhill, going to be downhill from there. And of course, there's the. Because it was still illegal to protest, so we all got, that was my first arrest.
2: Right, right. And there's the big shoalwater bay, mm. um, the military base mm. there. And mm. yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on. And yeah, the Byfield Rangers are probably one yeah, of the most Radio beautiful and, places I've ever been to. Yeah. yeah. But
1: Radio Nag's still, and Ag's still functioning. Radio Nag's still, still functioning. there you are. And yeah, you're the yeah, scene and it's still functioning. Yeah. Think about that. And that Considering was great. all the changes.
2: And also one of the other founders of Radio Nag was actually an English bloke whose name I can't remember now. Uh, But, yeah, it was a ragtag bunch of us that Mm. that set it up and – I had a friend actually who's a, a U.S. Marine who was over who ended up there for the last Shoalwater Bay activity. Yep, yep. And he called me and he's like, oh, I've got to go and do this radio interview with Radio Nag. What a weird name. And I'm like, hey, I helped set that up. <laughs> <laughs>
1: nag,
2: nag, nag, nag. Now you said
1: you've got three kids. Yes. When did they come along?
2: Oh, well, so one day I was sitting on the beach in Yapoon and went – I know all this stuff and I have all this stuff that I want to do and I can't do it if I'm sitting here isolated on a beach, not participating in society. Uh, So I came back to Melbourne in 1999, towards the end of 99, and met the person who turned out to be my husband and Mm -hmm. uh, father of my kids. Uh, So the first baby came along in – no, sorry, end of 1998. First baby came along in 2000. And then I, I, you know, I like to do things radically. So, three babies in four years, pump them out as quickly as yeah, I yeah, could. Yeah, yeah. So two boys and a girl cool. between 2000 and 2004.
1: Mm, that's hard work. It,
2: it was, it was in I. T- I t- and don't try that at home, to anyone listening. <laughs> was, I, don't, I don't, I don't, don't, don't recommend it. Uh, yeah, it was incredibly hard work, and of course I. I married a a chef who, you know, anyone who's married to anyone in hospitality will know they're never home.
3: That's
2: right. Uh, So it was a bit like being a single parent when they were really, really little.
0: Mm.
2: Uh, But one of the things, again, that having kids did was further radicalise me politically.
1: Why Uh, why would kids radicalise you? Most people kind of put their heads down and wash nappies and work hard.
2: Yeah. I, I just you know i mean i guess maybe for some people that they're, they're just i've always been political uh but there was i there was just this moment when the first one Gabrielle, who's now 16 i just remember the very first day he was born and being in hospital and everyone left and we were all alone just him and i and i just remember thinking holy shit like i have such a massive responsibility to you and um, you know, I had the t v on in the in the room I was in, and the news was on and they were um it was it was actually this really bizarre thing because i i am not particularly uh an animal rights activist as mm. such, but they were hauling this massive whale and its baby on one of those Japanese ships out of the water, and I just started bawling uncontrollably, mm. probably because my milk was coming in I was extremely hormonal <laughs> uh but it just There was something about. Actually, now it's not just that I have an interest in this. It's actually now I have an obligation to do something about it. That's
1: right. It's not just me anymore. No. And they've got a future. Yeah, exactly. And it's
2: not. And it's not even just this baby in my arms. It's every baby. It's the. Mm. It's that baby whale as well Mm. as this baby. Mm. So it really. It made me feel like I, I had an obligation to act. I, I couldn't knowingly sit by anymore and go, oh, that's terrible, have another glass of wine and go home. Mm-hmm. It's like I, what happens on this planet is now going to impact something that I deliberately created.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so it it really, yeah, it, it kind of – I know a lot of people get buried in sand and instead I decided to go back to uni and do a master's and work out how I could a somehow. A master's in what? I ended up doing a master's in comms, but it was communication, sorry. Mm. Uh, But it was a, you know, the wonderful thing about being at uni back in the early 90s and going back in 2000 and something is you could diversify your streams and do all these amazing things that you couldn't do. Mm. So it was a combination of uh, communications and international relations. I was really interested in looking at the intersection between Global governance, global media, and uh, the war on terror, which, of Mm. course, had begun by Mm. the the time I went back to do my master's. Mm. And, you know, that – and, of course, that sitting breastfeeding and watching the towers fall was like, okay, (laughs) we're in trouble. We need to do something. So what did you do? Uh, So – I thought I need to get out of working in media because uh, it's, it feeds everything that is really you know not what I'm interested in in terms of neoliberal capitalism. So I decided I needed to find out what I thought of the NGO sector, and the uh the best place to start for me, I thought naively, would be international aid and development. Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, how it, wrong I was? Little did you know.
2: Actually, to be fair, I learned a great deal, uh, which led me, you know, to where I am now. But uh, so I ended up getting a job working for the Australian Council for International Development, uh, helping to run the Make Poverty History campaign in Australia. So I was that like. Well, it was great because I'd, I'd never worked for an NGO and I'd never formally worked in a campaign environment. And of course, it's the biggest coalition of NGOs in Australia, so there were seventy, co- mm. you know, coalition partners, yes. ranging from very religious to um, you know o- people like Oxfam, World no. Vision, yeah. uh, WWF. So it was great because it really introduced me both to the bureaucracy of the system and also the, the sexism of the system, uh, but it also enabled me to learn the ropes in a really well-oiled, established way. Uh, around policy writing, around how you mobilise people. Uh, and I also learnt what they wouldn't let me do, which I thought would work, and I mm. couldn't work out why we couldn't do certain things like right. direct action and, yeah. um, you know, more more sort of feisty things. Uh, so it was great. I, I worked with them up until uh, – so Kevin07 was the big one yep. uh, and I was heavily involved in all of that sort of push – to ensure the aid budget stayed and then again in 2010 uh, where I worked very closely with Tree to mobilise youth to lobby politicians around the aid budget, mm. which again we held right. at that time. Mm. It fell not long after that. Yeah. suddenly went from 0.7 to 0.5 is our aspiration. Uh, so, yeah, there was lots of good lessons. I think the main thing that I took away from that though was that – I really find the hypocrisy of uh, those kind of structures where they are talking about holding to account the world around gender equity, mm. uh, child mortality rates and yet I was sitting in a room full of CEOs And I was the workhorse and I was the only woman and I was the only one for three years that never had a permanent contract. Mm. So I didn't get sick pay, I didn't get holiday pay. I had to save my money every year so I could buy presents at Christmas and pay the rent before I started getting paid again the following year Mm. Uh, while, you know, the likes of Tim Costello were driving in and around and arriving Mm. nicely suited and well-fed and not stressed. And... And then, of course, I started to question the whole ideology uh, behind uh, the way the money flow, or the paternalism right. of, of aid and development, mm. this sense mm. that
3: mm.
2: all the statistical information shows that if you educate women, if you empower women, if you give women and the community control over the resource – you know, 90% of that goes back into the community. But the way it was playing out is that the warlords and the men were controlling the money and the resource and, you know, Mm. there was just everything was going backwards. Backwards. So I started calling out the people that I was working with on this, and I kept hitting walls mm. about it. And
1: well, there are limits. There are they work within certain parameters. These organisations, as you found out, sure. Is that, is that when you moved to Foe? or?
2: Yeah, so I, I just got to the point where I was like, actually, I feel like I'm perpetuating the problem. Mm. And so I remember going home and. And writing a resignation email and then writing myself sort of a one-page manifesto, Mm.
3: uh,
2: which was sort of my contract to myself for the rest of my life, was kind of how I viewed it in my head.
3: Right.
2: Uh, Which, you know, may not be wise. We may have to renegotiate with each other. (laughs) But but at the time it seemed like the sensible thing to do, Mm. which was to say – I I don't want to earn money doing something that is out of alignment with who I am and what my values are. And the most important things to me are the planet, gender equity and smashing patriarchy and neoliberalism. How can I find a job that does all those things? Uh, And then I saw a job advertised at Foe and it was one of the only jobs that I applied for and um, went and met Cam Walker and mm -hmm. had an interview. And I just remember calling a friend after the interview and – she said to me, how'd you go? How'd you go? And I said, I don't know if I'll get the job, you know, like I haven't worked mm-hmm. at Strictly in Environment. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I come from a really different background to the rest of them. But, oh, my God, Cam Walker, like just to get to spend an hour talking with Cam Walker, what an amazing human being. And he was the only name I'd heard mentioned in the aid and development world from the environment movement mm-hmm. was, I'd say, that I need to talk to someone about, you know, the um, – not drowning, uh, waving kind of series Mm. that we're doing. Mm. They'd be like, oh, Cam Walker, Mm. Cam Walker. Mm. I'd be like, who is this Cam Walker? And they're like, you don't know who Cam Walker is. I'm like, I have no idea. Living legend. So yeah, I I feel very blessed. And I feel like I actually finally found a place where, Mm. um, the people that work there and volunteer there do walk the talk Mm. and the philosophy and the values are matched by the behaviour oh, and good. and by what they're striving for. Mm. So, yeah, very, very lucky. Mm.
1: Two final questions because the sure. hour's up. I thought you said not.
2: there was only two questions. No, are but, we up to these, four?
1: These are subsections. Uh,
2: okay. <laughs>
1: <laughs> two final questions. Mm-hmm. One, what do you do at 3CR?
2: I co-host, oh, I'm one of the hosts, sort of rotating mm. hosts of Friends of the Earth show Dirt Radio, which mm-hmm. is 10.30 on Mondays. Right. And it's a little half-hour show where we normally feature one interview around the work that Friends of the Earth or our, or our friends in other campaigns are doing.
1: Mm. And how do you think you go with that contract with your children and all the babies of the world?
2: Which contract?
1: Well, when you had Gabriel in your arms. Yes. That contract, that decision you made that mm. you wanted, yeah. you know, handed over in a, in a, in a better state of...
2: I, well, I still feel like that is my obligation and, you know... But
1: how do you think you're going along that track?
2: I, f- I feel like I'm doing as much as I can. It, of course, never feels like it's enough mm-hmm. and it's always way too slow mm-hmm. for where I'd like to be in my mind. But I feel like I, you know, if if I was god forbid to get really ill tomorrow and leave the planet i'm pretty sure i could look my kids in the eye and say i've i did everything i could for now and i'm sorry if it's not enough and i look around the world and i fear that it's not but mm. uh who knows I'm, I'm sort of nervous to go outside because i think the u.s election might have been decided <laughs>
1: yes and, uh, and it could be a republican threesome it Senate, Congress, and President.
2: It could be It'd be
1: wonderful, yeah. won't it?
2: Yeah, we're headed for really dark times, exactly. if that is the mm. case. But civil war, quite possibly, yeah, mm. race war, if nothing else. But mm. so I feel like, uh, you know, the most important thing is to be able to just hold the heart. Mm. Uh, it's that old saying, you know, I don't fight fascists because I'll necessarily win. I fight them because they're fascists. Mm. That's, I think, where we all need to get to at this particular point.
1: Well, it is a dark period, but yeah. you've actually lightened that dark period for our listeners. Oh, thanks, John. And, and I think you've kept their mind away from what's happening in the US for the last hour, which is a crowning glory, I think, on your part. I came in here quite <laughs> depressed, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite, I really feel uh, uplifted by your story and your life. Oh, thank you. And the you. fact there are people like you that do make a difference. So I'd like to congratulate you. And I'd like to congratulate all those doctors and nurses at the Royal Children's Hospital who pulled you through because if they hadn't, we wouldn't have had the joy of speaking to you. And I mean that from the bottom of my heart.
2: Thanks, Joe. And, yeah, I think of them quite often and I thank them too. Mm,
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Dale.
2: Bye. (laughs) Bye.
0: leaking. Everybody knows the captain line. Everybody got this broken feeling. Like their father or their dog just died. Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates and the long stem rose. Everybody